0: Powered by volunteer community involvement, this is CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm the programming coordinator at Cinematech and host of the horror film podcast and radio show Bikini Drive-In on CKW 95.9 FM. We acknowledge that the Cinematech resides on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the, of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, OJ Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and is the homeland of the Métis Nation. We are privileged to be able to live, work, and play on this land. Bikini Jarvin's mission is to analyze horror and science fiction films through an intersectional feminist lens, while combining elements of screen and media studies, arts criticism and gender studies. Since we will be discussing portrayals of horror and violence, content warning, listener discussion is advised, etc. Also spoilers ahead. Today I'm joined by Alison Lang. Thank you so much for being on the show again.
1: Thanks for having me. Yay.
0: Yeah. Allison is a writer and editor based in Toronto, she writes for Rue and wrote a book called Women with Guts in the Rue Library. She also makes zines and is currently working on part two of her Music Men Ruin For Me series. Along with Esther Splett, she co-hosts a bi-monthly Facebook movie series called Toxic Femme Films, focusing on movies about hags, harpies, lesbians, sluts, and monstrous women. And I just want to show everyone your zines and your book, because they're very great.
1: Oh, thank you. <laughs>
0: And today we'll be discussing Shinya Tsukamoto's 1989 film Tetsuo the Iron Man, which is available to rent from Cinematic at Home until Friday, June 4th. And if you're watching this on Facebook Live and have any questions, please feel free to leave them in the comments and we'll try our best to answer all of them. Shall I try to synopsize this movie? Let's see how it goes. A metal fetishist, played by Shinya Tsukamoto, is driven mad by maggots wriggling in a wound after he's attempted to embed metal into his flesh. In his madness, the fetishist runs out of the night and is accidentally run down by a businessman and his girlfriend. The pair dispose of the body in hopes of quietly moving on with their lives. However, the businessman is soon plagued by a vicious curse that transforms his flesh into iron. And I have a quote here from AnotherMag.com that kind of summarizes the film in a really interesting way. Set in a desolate Tokyo wasteland, where piles of junkyard scrap take the place of trees and shrubbery, almost every aspect of the film's design evokes metallic imagery. TV static, roaring trains, and clinking kitchenware dominate the audio track, while the industrial rock score is built around the tireless sounds of beating iron. The hyperkinetic editing is jagged and violent, while spiky stop-motion sequences only accentuate the film's unnerving atmosphere. It's a br- brilliant, insane prospect of a film that remains ex- as exhilarating today as it did 30 years ago. So, Alison, what is your history with Tetsuo?
1: Oh, my, so I'm, I feel like I always say this when we chat about movie history, but I'm horribly dating myself. But um, I first saw this movie almost 20 years ago in my first year of university. And I saw it in the context that I think a lot of pe- maybe students or, you know, high school students or y- or younger people see <laughs> movies, younger people yes. uh, see movies like Tetsuo. I saw it in like almost a triptych with um, Eraserhead and uh, like The Fly, like I saw those movies in mm-hmm. actual very close succession to each other, just because mm-hmm. I was at the point in my life where... I was meeting older people at school who were getting me hooked on all the weird stuff that I somehow never accessed in high school. And it was that, and I'm sure everyone can relate to this. It was like this amazing form, you know, um, formative time where I was being introduced to all these these crazy, you know, wild, disgusting movies. Um, And I remember watching Tetsuo and being like, just like I was probably like kind of drunk or stoned and just it was probably like late at night, like, like in my dorm room like and, and I probably watched a bootleg on my computer because we didn't know where to find it but you know those things that get passed around mm-hmm. it was the same way I saw a razor head and I remember being like so like gross I was so I didn't know like it woke it woke me up from whatever stupor I was in that was for sure and I was just like what am I watching I was really like horrified uh disgusted yeah I was pretty pretty traumatized the first time mm-hmm. I saw it um And it's been so nice rewatching it so many years later um, for this conversation because I had a completely different experience the second time. Mm And even though I didn't remember a lot of it from the first time, I just remember this overall like, like horror show, visceral nightmare. And then this time around, I found it um, quite funny. Mm -hmm. And um, very, I was just like, really impressed, like, and it made me feel very creative. And excited in a really galvanizing way that was really Mm -hmm. nice and that I completely missed 20 years ago I was just so so horrified that I missed things (laughs) but um and then yeah it was like a gateway into like surreal you know intense Japanese you know film and horror film and thrillers Mm -hmm. uh it got me into Takashi Miike um for sure like that was the entry point that like led me to be cu- more curious about other Japanese directors. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, um, my partner um, got really interested in Japanese cyberpunk and started like kind of searching for more films in that genre. And uh, we watched a movie called Burst City, which is directed by Sogo Ishii, Ishi, who I guess is sort of a contemporary of um, Tsukamoto in a way, but Burst City actually came out before Tetsuo. Um, and it's literally, it's an awesome movie. It's like a pu- about punk rock crazed Japanese bikers who, and there's some body horror, but it's a lot more cyberpunky. Uh, and the soundtrack is unbelievable. Like the cramps are on it and like all oh, amazing. Yeah. It's like this super punk rock soundtrack. Um, but yeah, that vibe I've always, yeah. Tetsuo kind of opened that door for me and it's just been a really attractive and vibe that I've sort of been interested in very, very casually ever since, I would say.
0: Cool. Yeah, Yeah, this is my um, first time watching it ever, and um, I heard about it from uh, Ladies Horror Night podcast, which is a really great podcast that everyone should listen to. It's very fun. Um, Yeah, the Tetsuo, it feels so, like, transgressive and violent and silly, and, but also nauseating, but, like, all in this, like, really wonderful way, but, like, when I watched it, I was like kind of tired, it was hot, and it was just like, I felt like my feelings hurt. Like everything, it was just like uncomfortable, but also very cathartic and like wonderful. Yeah, it's a very it's a very strange movie that way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I just want to start by talking about Japanese cyberpunk movement. So T- Tsukamoto is one of the main directors associated with the Japanese cyberpunk movement. Um, which generally involves the characters, especially the protagonists going through monstrous, incomprehensible metamorphoses in an industrial setting. Many of these films have scenes that fall into the experimental film genre. They often involve purely abstract or visual sequences that may or may not relate to the characters and plot. And they also have reoccurring themes of mutation, technology, dehumanization, repression, and sexual deviance. And I feel like with Tetsuo, the score, the set, the editing, all of these elements really capture the subgenre's connection to uh, Japanese punk culture as well. So um, the score was supplied by the late industrial musician Chu Ishikawa. It is like so intense and like so kinetic, but I also, I felt like I was being chased while I was watching that. Um, Also, yeah, very DIY set. So most of the the filming took place in um, Kay Fujiwara's apartment, who we will talk about her career um, in a little bit later. Um, and also, yeah, the, the editing is like very connected, very musical, It kind of like it felt like I was watching a music video in a way. Um, it is also like so fast and nauseating. It's just, yeah, it's so great. <laughs> um, oh, sorry,
1: I'm just looking at our notes here. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah I feel like. Yeah, there's just, like, so, there's so many, it's such a visceral movie, and mm-hmm. then it's been interesting. Um, Olivia and I have been, like, chatting over a Google Doc about, like, stuff we want to talk about today, and it's interesting because I feel like you can watch this movie on different levels. You can watch it and just experience it and let it, you know, let it throb your feelings, <laughs> kind of hurt your eyeballs, and yeah, and just, yeah, I just have this very visceral, amazing experience because, so many aspects of the film considering it was a completely DIY product Mm -hmm. project it was like you know everyone was pitching in everyone was wearing different hats and then you have this score that like the director I think just was submitted a bunch of soundtracks and then happened to come across Ishikawa's um like the industrial band he was in Mm -hmm. at the time Mm -hmm. and he was like oh this is this is exactly what it is and like uh gave him notes to like make music that sounded like it was being made with metal but not literally but but sort of mm-hmm. um, and it's just i feel like it's one of those magical moments where you can have like this purely sensory experience with the film if that's what you want and then there's also there's so many like little layers if you want to like pick pick away at it a little bit more um and one of those is um just sort of the idea of the film is like a I guess uh, all, not a metaphor for capitalism but the way it looks at capitalism and industrialism in Japan and the way that uh, I guess when Tsukamoto was growing up in the 60s I I get the sense that Japan must have been a much greener place from like mm. the little I know of how you know cities change and especially how rapidly things develop in Japan and then I'm sure to see like you know, so much of Tetsuo focuses on this, like, world of concrete and this, you know, high rises and, like, mm-hmm. all but all very desolate. You never see anyone else in the streets, really. It's just, like, the only things you see are, like, for most of the film are, like, sort of the the suffocating, like, world of mm-hmm. buildings and concrete and, and yeah, and metal, of course. Um, and Tsukamoto, uh, he kind of started his career working in commercials because that's what his father did, that was kind of like his father's like trade and his father was and this word will come up a lot and i had to look it up because i i don't understand how it's used in japan and had to google it but his father was a salary man which is basically a person a, a, a white collar worker in japan who is undyingly loyal to the corporation for which mm. he or she works for um and of course Sugimoto had no interest in any of this and you know really didn't like working on commercials at all was literally just doing it to learn how to use film equipment I think mm-hmm. um, and so he he really like cleaved away from that and his father really didn't approve of anything that wasn't like the salary salary man mm-hmm. lifestyle so he actually kicked Sukamoto out of the house I think when he was like you know fairly young like in his early 20s after he was like I'm not doing this commercial. Anymore, mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to start a theater troupe with my pals and like not live here anymore. <laughs> and staff was like, get out of here! Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Which is yeah, it's sort of tragic, and I, yeah. I think his their relationship never. I don't get the sense it repaired itself mm-hmm. from what the you know the bits and pieces I've read, but it seems like a lot of uh Tetsuo, and I know we'll probably circle back to this again. Is like, mm-hmm. seems like it's very personal. It's very much Yukimoto mm-hmm. being like. I'm actively because the main character is also a salary man and mm-hmm. he, he's like the cut and paste version of salary man with like you know boring Clark, Clark Kent glasses and <laughs> shirts and he's walking around and he's mm-hmm. quite quite boring and uh, then of course he becomes very not boring mm-hmm. <laughs> and he goes through a very interesting transformation mm-hmm. um yeah and it's just so interesting to think about what what the personal threads that were kind of going through that and the anger you know right yeah yeah
0: yeah totally <clears throat> yeah that that idea of like transformation will also like anxieties are sort of fighting against like what what was expected of him like i feel like that comes up in the idea of like transhumanism, which I'm not super familiar with, but um, in my research I did find that um, it's a belief or theory that the human race can evolve beyond its current physical and mental limitations, especially by means of science and technology. And I have a quote here from a paper called Bioethics and Transhumanism by Ellen Porter. Transhumanism is the techno progressive socio political and intellectual movement that advocates for the use of technology in order to transform the human organism radically, with the ultimate goal of becoming post human. To this end, transhumanists focus on and encourage the use of new and emerging technologies, such as genetic engineering and brain machine interfaces. So, yeah, like I said, I'm not um, super familiar, familiar with this philosophy, but because we live in a capitalist hellscape, um, I feel like a lot of these sort of theories or ideas are like used for evil like the idea of transhumanism and technological technological advancement seems to be about like which rich asshole is going to colonize the moon first or like whether or not robots deserve rights rather than say like how do you make the world accessible and how do you make sure every community has clean drinking water you know
1: yeah, it's always something that like you're always like in the right hands, in the right hands. No, <laughs> <laughs> never in the right hands. Um, yeah, I was I was saying in my notes to Olivia like my only my I have a passing familiarity with transhumanism just because I've had a lot of um, to be honest men in my life discuss this particular figure with me and his name is Steve Mann. Uh, he's a professor at UFT. Probably, I, I, people are probably familiar with him. I don't want to presume people don't know who he is in Toronto, but he basically, uh, among his many accomplishments, he he event he invented a wearable computer. Um, and one of one iteration of this was called ITap, which is basically like Google Glass, like it's mm-hmm. like glasses that are affixed to your face and it transmits what you see, what the person who's using them sees to a computer. And the person can also overlay data on top of what they're seeing and then basically transmit kind of a curated viewpoint of what they see in the world. And it's, mm. it, he's like commonly called a cyborg because he invented mm. this thing. He's like half man, half, literally half robot with this you know thing on your face that's transmitting visuals and data. Um, yeah, I had a description of a pro- the product that that project. I don't think I'm going to read it just because I think that's the, <laughs> this is my very broad strokes. Um, sure. But he, yeah, he was described as the first person to live in total constant intimate intimate contact with the computer, and that the word intimate made me think about Tetsuo mm-hmm. because what is this movie but if not like the intimacy of metal like charging mm-hmm. through your body and like kind of yeah for you know. Making you do things uh, against your will and uh, against your control, but also, you know, transmitting to other people. And mm-hmm. like, yeah, it, um, Steve Mann, he's kind of like used that technology to bring up some interesting conversations that I think are really valuable about like technology and surveillance. Um, and he's become kind of a leader in sort of counter surveillance. Mm-hmm. He brought up an idea at one point called Sue surveillance about um, where people could use this wearable tech to surveil corporations and governments, which is an interesting thought, to be sure, Um, and sort of makes me think again about Tsukamoto's railing against the corporate lackeys of the world Mm -hmm. with this film um but then he also like was at mcdonald's with his family apparently wearing the the glasses he made many years ago and someone like assaulted him like i think it might have been a worker they were like why are you wearing those like get them off your face
0: oh my gosh
1: so it's definitely his work has prompted a lot of different reactions for sure um but yeah it just goes back to again the idea of any google thing any smart technology again raises so many issues about about privacy and control Mm -hmm. and government control and yeah I think those are all yeah like going back to the points you raised like yeah it's what are these technologies for who are they for Mm -hmm. what is it doing
0: yeah 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 and I think the film taps into these anxieties and fears surrounding technology and in the film we see a deliberate rejection of biology in favor for technology as you mentioned And the the loss of biology and humanness to technology and machinery is shown as kind of contagious or even like a possession. And and it's inevitable, as we see like with the woman with the glasses. I think it's like in a, is it a subway station or they're waiting for a bus? Um, So with her character as well as the businessman's final form. Um, I have another quote here from Little White Lies from an essay called Tetsuo, the Iron Man and the Dark Side of Transhumanism by Sam Moore. Tetsuo deeply immerses itself in technology as a way of seeing the world. These ideas establish a relationship between people and technology, where the latter treat the former as hosts, as a way of coming to life and taking control. It's a darkened version of the utopian ideals of transhumanism, where instead of humans, use technology as a way of advancing themselves, the opposite becomes true. Humans are used as vessels for the advancement of rogue technologies, the bi- biology of body horror being rejected for a nightmare in Chrome.
1: I love that, a nightmare in uh-huh. Chrome. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think we'll we'll circle back to that too. The idea of um, yeah, the the idea, I, I the thing that keeps sticking with me is like, is the ending of this film negative? Is the yeah. technology and neg- Because it does not to spoil anything because we'll all see this together in a in a bit. But um, mm-hmm. the ending is not where you. It doesn't end the way you think it's mm-hmm. going to end for these yeah. these two fellows or people. Mm-hmm. or machines or whatever they become um mm-hmm. but yeah it's um yeah i love that a nightmare in chrome that's such a good description of this mm-hmm. movie in general it's also yeah the movie is in black and white and so it does such a good it's such a good landscape for metal high contrast like yeah. metal stuff happening um
0: yeah that, i don't know if i would be able to watch it if it was in color
1: no well okay here's the thing yeah uh, i know i'm skipping ahead but teto 2 i mm-hmm watched I had never seen it and after rewatching Tetsuo for this chat I, I watched it for the first time and it's basically a remake of Tetsuo in color so oh, wow. imagine that in color it's a lot it's yeah like it's
0: already gruesome and I think I'm able to like there is that like I don't know safety in the fact that like you're not seeing like blood and flesh yeah
1: anymore. it's it, that's that interesting level of removal. Yeah. That you, yeah, you have that. I find I have that with Eraser Head too. Like, I'm like, you know, horrified, but also there's a level of detachment and artifice mm-hmm. because it's in black and white for whatever reason that was probably for money, you know, yeah. or whatever. But yeah, Tetsuo Part 2 is like, yeah, it's a slightly different storyline, but it has a lot of the same. A lot of the same stuff is happening, and you're yeah, and you're just it's beautiful in parts, like you're like, Whoa, and it's like very impressive, but it's also you're just like, Oh, oh god, like <laughs> god, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, but uh, yeah, I uh, so I wanted to jump okay, so here's this is where I was like, I might be reading too much into this film, and mm-hmm. maybe I should stop reading about it online because I'm over analyzing it and I don't know this was Sukamoto's intent mm-hmm. but you know why not like dig into it um I did ask myself if this movie is queer and the ending kind of feels like it feels queer on a couple of le- levels it feels like the salaryman rejects heterosexual re- heterosexuality in mm-hmm. some ways or he's exploring different yeah he his transition into this metal creature also coincides with his Kind of tran- transition away from a codependent relationship mm. with his partner in some in some ways. That's like mm. one reading of it, and I know there's could be a lot of others. So I don't want to say that's definitive at all. That's just what I see it. But yeah, and then the idea that he also has given himself over to a new type of body mm-hmm. that is not the one he was born with, and you know potentially a, a different gender or he's abandoned gender altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ending of the film really kind of kind of hammers this feeling home. There's like some, exp- you know, there's some explicit lines that I know we're going to talk about that mm-hmm. kind of suggest this. Yeah, that he's fused. This may be a love story, a, you know, a transhumanist transgender love story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I feel like for me the move watching it in 2021, I was like this movie kind of explores ideas of like a genderless supremacy. Yeah. Um, in that every, everyone in the movie becomes more powerful when their bodies and their genitals are relinquished to this metal possession or this metal mm-hmm. plague. And they just kind of, things change and become very mutable and it's terrifying, but they also gain a lot of power. And I, the, I think the movie leaves it open-ended whether this power is completely evil or is mm-hmm. it just something else? Is it like a different type of self-knowledge? Right. Um, but yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was totally thinking that too as I was watching it. As like because one of the last lines of dialogue is our love will destroy the world. And it's kind of unclear if like does that mean the love between these two characters, their love with their new bodies, or even the love for like this metal plague and destruction that they're gonna bring upon the world. the <laughs> そして
1: I was um, uh, kind of Googling to see who's, and of course, people people have been writing about this film for mm-hmm. many, many years. And there's definitely academic readings that talk about so many aspects of it, like, like you know, the uh, like erotic femme character, mm-hmm. and yeah, definitely homosexual readings, queer readings of the film. And uh, I stopped upon a post by the writer Howard David Ingram, who I love. He wrote a book um called we don't go back and it's uh about folk horror and it's just his views on different folk horror cultural properties tv series uh movies all over the place a lot of british stuff but um it's really worth checking out and he's a very sensitive thoughtful writer so i knew like if he's writing about sexuality and tetsuo it would be Mm -hmm. fairly considered um and he saw those queer threads in both films which is Mm -hmm. interesting too um but he argued that Especially the first tattoo has like a very horrific and amoral core. Mm. And because of this, it makes actual intimacy and relationships between the characters sort of a non issue. Like it's mm. not really there. And his quote, kind of about this, he said, Because the film's queerness is married to their cyborg horrors, either we have to read them as homophobic in as much as if cyborg mutation results in queerness. Queerness needs horror to exist, which is an interesting idea, the idea mm-hmm. that these metal bodies, because they become queer as they become more metal, it associates queerness with evil and
0: destruction. Mm-hmm. Or, whatever. Right.
1: Um, or they're films that approve of hyper- hyper-masculine queerness as a product of a loveless industrial transformation of men into machinery, where women and children are discarded or ground up as so much meat. Um, here, queerness is made toxic, for Tetsuo, Iron Man, and Body Hammer alike like, lethal conflict is all, brutal sexualized violence, the only site of pleasure and pain, and only the apocalyptic wasteland provides any chance of peace. Um, I wondered what you thought about that.
0: Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it is interesting, especially like, um, I think you mentioned the kind of immoral core or even... Um, Yeah, because that made me think of the K. Fujiwara character, or the the girlfriend that she's credited as. Like her, she's almost like punished for her sexuality because we see that she's kind of instigating like sex between her and the businessman after they've disposed of the body of um, the metal fetishist, and it's almost like she's kind of, and then she is like impaled and murdered after that, which we will get into. So it is. I think it's complicated. I don't necessarily know how I feel about. Is it an indictment on sexuality, on, on queerness, or or what? But it is. I feel like this comes a lot comes up a lot in in horror films, where it's like, if a villain is queer coded, is that saying that queerness is is inherently like evil and villainous? Or, yeah, I I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it's very or, or or is this or is the the metal monster at the end? Is it the, this destructive force that's going to kind of like take down this post-industrial society
1: and make maybe burn every literally burn everything down? and yeah. start, start new and presumably better or better yeah. than what existed. Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah, Jill and I we actually talked about this um, on our Nosferatu show that we'd had last month and kind of like. What does this this sort of figure represent? As it is destructive, but it's also, yeah, possibly bringing a new new sort of way of living.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's very always very interesting to think about. Um. Yeah, since you brought up Kate Pujol, yes, let's chat about her. So Please. she plays um, the salary man's, I guess, paramour, mm-hmm. uh, and boy, their relationship don't. Wow, a lot a lot of stuff going on, uh, <laughs> yeah. a lot of different types of penetrations yeah. from both sides, uh, a lot of uh, very comedic stuff happening. The mm-hmm. interplay between the two actors is, is so wonderful and I'm so excited for people to see it because she met Sukamoto. they were in an improv theater group together, hence the improv theater group that he left his home to participate in as, as an artist when he made his career change. Um, and they're, this improv theater group, so I just looked at this recently, they were called the Kaiju Theater Company, and they performed underground plays in a tent made to look like a kaiju. So, like a giant sea monster with like oh, a fine wow. pictures of it online. It's like just this giant monster. Anyway, it's amazing. They obviously had the most fun of life. Um, so, then he, was, he made a film that was sort of the early prototype for Tetsuo, and Fujiwara was in it. Then he went on to make Tetsuo, and um, the two other stars of Tetsuo, uh, the salaryman, who's played by Tomoro Taguchi, and the glasses-wearing woman, whose name is Nobu Kanaoka, they are all. They were also in the troupe as well. So it was a real family affair, and then everyone in the troupe, like, did lighting and sets and makeup and all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, as we mentioned earlier, she also offered her apartment um, for the for most mm-hmm. of the Techo time the whole cast and crew lived there and they like destroyed her apartment they like had Ridiculous. to drill holes and shit and just like it was it's a you will see in the film it's a nightmarish mess and she yeah. just allowed them to do that um and she was also pivotal in the sense that he gave her a lot of camera work and that that's partially because he's he is allegedly very intense to work with Mm-hmm. and a lot of the crew just started to leave they were like we don't want to do this with you this movie's fucking intense and <laughs> you are a nightmare to do it but he like they also I think saw his vision and like stayed to a certain point point. and she was a real foil for him I think I think they really came up with a lot of ideas together especially about her character and he entrusted her with a lot of camera work he was just like I don't trust these other crew members sometimes I'm going to give the camera to you so she learned how to use the camera just on while they were shooting Tetsuo she just so a lot of the camera work you see is her involvement Mm -hmm. Um, and then she also had a pivotal design uh, role in the film she designed a particularly important prop in Tetsuo (laughs) and I will let olivia explain board <laughs> you have
0: to say what it is she designed the metal dong she designed <laughs> metal dong everybody it's amazing the metal
1: dong it's a metal dong it's a drill it's a penis drill it's horrific it's i it, it's not a spoiler to say that because you have to see it and you have to like see it. it's like the craziest thing ever we won't say when it, the reveal happens but she designed it Mm-hmm. which is a very important contribution.
0: Yeah, it was made from a deconstructed fan. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I have a quote um, from an interview that you shared uh, with Fujiwara for Movie.com, kind of about the makeup and special effects. Um, so she says, since Tetsuo, my method is always the same. I don't have any background knowledge of special effects makeup. I just have a gut feeling of what can and what can't be used. Tsukamoto had these drawing storyboards for Tetsuo, like the steel body and the drill penis. For the latter, Tsukamoto just wanted to make something simple and said it would be enough if we could just pretend like it was moving. But I thought it would be only be interesting if it actually moved. I didn't have any high-tech skills, so I thought, that's it. I'll just look. Uh, I took the nearest working electric fan disassembled it down to its core and used all the rubber and tape i had at home sprayed it up and got it to go it was the same for organ i used household products mostly kitchenware
1: and Oregon is she went on so tetsuo ruined her friendship with uh sukamoto they she was just like we're both too intense and Mm -hmm. i just i wish you know they had a lot of arguments and she was like i'm good now i'm going to like do my own thing Mm-hmm. Um he did credit her in a number of places in the credits. Uh you'll see afterwards. He including assistant director, which I think is pretty impressive. Especially mm-hmm. like I kept thinking when I was reading about her relationship with Sukamoto, about John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. And it's not that John Carpenter like didn't credit Deborah Hill, like as obviously she's credited as a producer and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But like you think about the cr- many creative contributions that Deborah Hill made, especially to movies like Halloween, like she, mm-hmm. you know, Haddonfield was named after her hometown. She just like added so much to the script and the mm-hmm. characters. And for Tsukamoto, you know, who's really kind of an auteur to be like, hey, my female friend who I'm now estranged from, yeah, you are the assistant director. I'm acknowledging your contributions. And, you know, I think that it was significant. And I think... Uh, you know that's that's meaningful for whatever it's worth mm-hmm. so she went on to make her own films uh one of them includes Oregon, which is a movie i read about in this amazing text called a thousand women in horror it's by alexandra heller nicholas and it is literally about a thousand different women who do things in horror and a number of them were people i had never heard about and then i read about fujiwara and then i was like wait tetsuo wait that was a woman in tetsuo oh my god oh, wow. so i sought out organ Uh, uh, and yeah it has a similar vibe to Teto in that it is very DIY and it you know she did the same kind of thing where she got her pals involved to act and you know do set design and all that it is in color it is disgusting like it is balls out disgusting it's about organ harvesters (laughs) who harvest organs for people's bodies while they're still alive (laughs) which is Mm -hmm. fun uh, it's very there's lots of vomit And like oozing pustules And it's very impressive um, And it's like full bore Yeah yeah she, yeah, she rules if you can see, Seek that film out It definitely seems like she's getting her due a bit more These days so that's awesome
0: That's great um, Yeah the Ladies Horror Night podcast they were talking about Oregon and apparently it was her idea Was to portray someone rotting From the inside yeah And um, I haven't seen it I've only seen the trailer and it is like like the palette is puke. Like the color palette is just like different types of puke to me.
1: (laughs) It's such a gross, it's like gross and sweaty. It's just a a hideous looking film. (laughs) So gross. Yeah, Um,
0: So let's go back to um, the metal dong scenes. They're pivotal. So we have um, the girlfriend's phallus in in a dream sequence hallucination, and then the businessman's drill penis. So first in the dream sequence, the mom, the woman who has a metal pipe penis that's kind of like sneaking around, um, it like chases the businessman, dominates, and then penetrates him. And it's like kind of unclear, like whether he's like enjoying it or not. Uh, very ambiguous. Um, and then in the second scene, um, the businessman's penis, penis morphs into this like very terrifying drill that we described that was like made out of bits of a, of a fan. Um, and he chases the woman around the apartment and eventually impales and kills her. Both scenes are very ambiguous about consent, pleasure, and fear, and illustrate a relation between pain and eroticism, sexual anxieties, and repression, uh, which you mentioned Cronenberg earlier, and I feel like those, those themes are also like a lot, big part of his films. Um, so I have a quote about um, Tetsuo for medium.com. Although Tsukamoto employs a cyborg motif common to cyberpunk, he puts a distinct twist on it. Although other cyberpunk media does not shy away from shoddy fusions of flesh and metal, there are a few which approach it in the way that he does. Tsukamoto's fusion of flesh and metal is extremely rough and horrific. It is not the high tech; it is not high tech by any means, but a harsh and agonizing mutation of a human into a metal monstrosity. This fusion is central to his vision and is the nexus of the themes he explores through the film. For Tsukamoto, the fusion was meant to be passionate. In his words, the foundational motif came in part from the wish to express eroticism. I found it very difficult to do that in a direct way and I felt I needed a metaphor to express that aspect, which became the invasion and er erosion of the body by metal. I tried to make an erotic film by way of science fiction to express eroticism through iron. Through this eroticism, he explores related themes such as pleasure and pain, self-mutilation and self-destruction and masochism and sadism. And, yeah, what do you think of that interpretation?
1: I got to tell you, it's interesting Mm -hmm. because, yeah, from my very limited Western experience of body horror movies, erotic Mm -hmm. is not the first thing that I associate (laughs) with with the genre. But as you mentioned, we have Cronenberg, Mm -hmm. who Tsukamoto is a a big fan of. Um, And, you know, Cronenberg does even though Cronenberg's movies can be aggressively unerotic I would Mm -hmm. argue most of the time they do are they are think examining I think very similar themes to Mm -hmm. as you mentioned earlier um the idea of invasion and uh pleasure and pain and Mm -hmm. being both so connected and so disconnected from the same you know by way of losing parts of your humanity and all that Mm -hmm. um and I don't know where to land. On, on that and i believe it to be i believe everything he said like i agree with it 100 percent. i feel like this movie for me is just a huge manifestation of the id um in a lot of ways it's very sensual um
0: mm-hmm.
1: sensual and in in, in, a, in an erotic way and sensual in just a, a, a body or you know filling, shaking kind of way yeah um and you know very animalistic um, yeah, all the characters seem really helpless in the face of all their various impulses. Uh, they're so easily taken over by this, like, electrifying force that's taking over their bodies. Um, and yeah, again, it's like, the co- I don't know if it's a coincidence that, like, the metal first infects the two most boring characters aka the salaryman and the very like state you'll see her in the movie she's like a a staid lady (laughs) she has nice glasses and her name in the credits is literally woman with glasses like she's so unremarkable (laughs) she doesn't have a name like um and yeah i just think but then you see these how gnarly they are as they change yeah um and it's like they're repressed Boring everyday selves are just surging away, as mm-hmm. painful as that is. And there's something kind of erotic about that as well. There's something kind of sexy about that. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> am, what can we say? <laughs> what else? What else is there? Um, yeah. I guess we can. Um, we can move on to some audience questions. So. If you're watching this on Facebook Live and have any questions, please feel free to leave them in the comments. And I think we have a few already. Oh, cool. Um, so we have one from Eleanor, um, who I believe organizes, is one of the organizers for Final Girls Fest Berlin.
1: Oh, yeah, she is. Hi. Hi, Eleanor. Hi.
0: Um, she asks, uh, "How do, do you know how the film was received in Japan at the time? Now, I didn't come across this in my research, but um, maybe you did.
1: It went, his first film kind of like lingered in obscurity, but then right as he was putting, either finishing Tetsuo or putting Tetsuo out and his first film, I can't remember the title of it right now. It was like a prototype for Tetsuo mm-hmm. and it was shorter, but very similar plot, um, much more amateurish and budgety, but um, that won an award, an international like like award. Um, and I think Lloyd Kaufman from Troma was on the board of that for that particular award so that gave him uh Sukamoto a big surge of like encouragement so he went forward with Tetsuo and yeah it did a lot of late night screenings very like sounded like kind of a John Watersy kind of midnight movie vibe and i mean can you imagine See, like it would be very funny if they had chosen yeah we'll just show it like you know matinee or like early evening sunday afternoon sunday afternoon just nice little popcorn movie yeah. but yeah it was like late night or midnight screenings and it was an immediate success my understanding is that or success in the sense that like people really responded to it people really liked it mm-hmm. um my understanding is that Japanese film at the time was kind of in a weird period, like Kurosawa was still operating, but not at the same level he had before. And it was in in like kind of a weird sort of stagnation. I think like not a lot of really, you know, attention grabbing films Mm. had come out recently in that year in 1989. So then, and I mean, it's 1989. So imagine anyone sitting in a theater seeing Tetsuo in 1989. You can't imagine not, having it, some sort of major response. But, and yeah, it went over really, I think it went over <clears throat> well with Japanese audiences and then it went over really well internationally. And like, it's not one of it's. I think it was an immediate cult hit, if that makes sense. Like it was never like mainstream, you know, but it immediately like people who are into underground film were like just buzzing about it right away. And it, yeah, it was very well reviewed. Roger Ebert was a huge fan so it had really
0: it was yeah he was so surprising
1: yeah he really liked it he really liked Tetsuo too he uh, yeah and he reviewed them like very thoughtfully and very um yeah just with a lot of respect you can tell he has a lot of respect for Sukumoto and for his vision and everything so yeah it's funny because you would think oh like I, you know, based on my own personal reaction to it, like, I just feel like people would be like, I hate this, I'm walking out of here. This yeah, is, this yeah. Is but yeah, pe- people, I think, responded generally well.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, surprising that uh, Roger Ebert was such a fan of it because he doesn't seem to be, or didn't seem to be, like, a fan of horror generally at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's wow. interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, also, like, very strange that this movie is from 1989 because it has this like kind of timeless quality to it. Like the businessman, the way that he's dressed, he, he looks like he's from like a French New Wave film.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I totally, I think that's this, a yeah. good observation.
0: Yeah. yeah. And maybe because it is just so low low budget that it kind of, they, they weren't necessarily relying on tricks at, or tools of the time, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I guess that's it for our show. Um, Where can people find your work?
1: Uh, You can find my work. uh, My website is womenandsongs666.com. Very professional website. (laughs) (laughs) I can put it in. I don't know how to add it to the Facebook chat, but anyway, you you folks can find it. We can
0: add it to the Zoom chat later. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's fine. If anyone wants to look at all the dumb stuff. I've done but yeah. uh <laughs> but yeah and uh yeah don't don't have anything coming up right now I'm working on part two of the zine music men ruin for me and hoping to have that out and ready to be purchased by early July it's been a long oh, yeah. long labor yeah.
0: do you still <laughs> have remember? copies of the first one
1: available uh I technically am sold out but if you ask me nicely I'll print you one yeah <laughs>
0: and and your book is still available uh
1: i think the book is
0: sold oh no i mean never mind um maybe if you're my friend you can borrow it yeah Yeah, you can um cool yeah thank you so much allison for joining me
1: thank you for having me
0: and yeah thank you so much for for joining us um you can listen to bikini drive-in every sunday at four on ckw 95.9 fm in winnipeg um you can find me on instagram twitter Facebook page, it's all bikini drive in. We'll also be having another discussion, a live discussion on Saturday, July 10th on the new film Censor. So please join us for that. That'll be interesting. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. by volunteer community involvement. This is CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg.